If you'd like to borrow a Bible, you know, raise your hand and the ushers will bring you a Bible. Glad to see those of you who are still here have not left for the holidays yet. Here a bit longer, it's great. Well, we have finished Malachi a couple weeks ago and next Sunday, when most of you are going to be gone, we are going to start a new book. Uh, the book of Matthew. We are going to be in the book of Matthew for an awfully long time, but it should be fun. That's why I got to get a a quick start on it next Thanksgiving week. But over the next year, we're occasionally going to stop uh, at different points and have these sermons talking about the heart of our church, kind of what we're about, what we frame in talking about our heart in something we call ethos. It's kind of the culture and character of our church. It's who we are and who we aspire to be. And we have about five statements, and this morning we're just going to look at one. It's called missional community. When you think of a missional community, I want you to think of a church on joining God on his mission. And when you think of mission of God, don't just think evangelism. Don't just think outreach. Don't just think of things outside of the church. When you think of the mission of God, just think of also a church embodying the gospel, a church living like the church is supposed to live, a church loving and caring for one another for that as well. Is, that's, the mission is God as well. And we have a great picture of this missional community in the book of Acts. So if you wouldn't mind, turn to the book of Acts. So we're going to look at this morning, a famous passage of the early church in Acts chapter 2. It's a biblical image of what this missional community can look like from the Bible. Acts chapter 2. And let's all stand as I read this. Acts 2, starting in verse 42. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who, were, were, all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing their proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. You may be seated. I preached this text about two years ago. Our church was going through the book of Acts. So this time around, as I just preached it two years ago, and I'm sure most of you were there. That's a joke. Most of you probably were not there. Um, but some of you may remember, but this time as we go through it, I want to be a bit more reflective on what I've been learning personally and maybe what you've been learning within your ethos communities. For those of you who are new, our ethos communities are, are kind of like, like a small group that you may have in your church. But in our ethos communities, we've been learning something on how the church is to be a city set on a hill. Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, he said, you are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. 
In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. So the church is to be this city set on a hill. It's to be this alternative society, this distinct city from the rest of the world. And, and this is so significant because we need to be this distinct and alternative society because when you go out of here, you're going to be running around and living your life in other societies or cities or cultures within the world. This is not the only group you participate in. All of you run in different groups and subgroups, families, at work, where you go for your entertainment. You're in different groups. And throughout your life, I don't know if you know this, but your different groups and subgroups in the life you live, these groups are trying to influence you, whether they're intentional about it or not. They're trying to influence you and your values and your beliefs. So you're just hearing one message here, but when you leave, you'll be bombarded with other messages. So let's just take a student, for example. You come here on Sunday morning, you're part of this culture, this city set on a hill, and I tell the students from the Word of God that he has, he has a wonderful plan for your, your married life one day, if, if it's his will for you to get married. But until then, you have to remain pure in your relationships and then enjoy the intimacy within your marriage one day. That's the, the message you'll hear here. But when you leave here, it's, you'll probably go back to your dorm room where the culture is, people are shacking up, right? And it's expected by the fourth date, something should happen, right? And then you go to your, another group or another culture of the classroom, and it's, talking, it's talk, talked about in biological urges, just like animals, right? The only thing that separates you from animals is that you know to, to practice it safely, Right? And then you, you turn on media, entertainment, and, and they offer you a wide variety of options. And we have a student who's running in these different groups and subgroups and culture. And, and, and it's no wonder that many Christian students fall into sexual immorality. All these different influences. And they fall. And what happens within our own lives is, as Christians, no matter what age we're at, we have different voices, different cultures. The world is trying to influence us and reinforce its values upon us in the different groups we run in. Staying on the note of uh, relationships, I don't know if you remember when Tim Keller was talking about the values of the world. Women in the world, typically, not all the time, but women are interested in guys who have good incomes. And men are typically within the world interested in women who are good-looking. Now, there's nothing wrong with marrying a guy who's got a job. And there's nothing wrong with being attracted to the girl. But I'm wondering, is the church any different in what they're looking for? Take, for example, the world. The way the world functions is you follow the money. You follow the job. You climb up the ladder. No matter what that means, if you need to move and uproot from one city to the next and then from that city to the next, it's a very mobile culture and I just wonder, are Christians any different? Are we always going to follow the next job offer? Are we always going to follow the money? Are we always going to follow the upgrade and move out of the city to somewhere else? Are we any different than the culture? There's been a lot of books that have come out within the Christian world trying to get 
Christians to shape and mold the culture. And you'll hear about Christians saying how they are culture makers, how they're going out to change the world and shape the culture. But it's very likely that the culture they're trying to shape and change is more than likely shaping and changing them into its image. And that's why we need a distinct society, a distinct culture, an alternative city on a hill where people are being shaped and molded. And as they operate in different groups and subgroups, they're they're not falling. They're not being shaped by the world. And and guess what that structure is? It's the church. It's the church built by our Lord Jesus Christ. He has built his church, and it will not fall. And within this church that he's built, it is meant to shape and mold you into a disciple of Jesus. You're not meant to function as an individual on your own, functioning in discipleship. Your discipleship is formed within the church. And that's what we're going to look at this morning. Two things. How can this church be a distinct culture that forms and molds you into disciple of Jesus? And how can this church be a city set on the hill where the the, the world takes notice? And the world says, you know what? You don't look like us. You're different. That's kind of attractive. How can we be that city set on a hill? And I believe the early church in the passage we just read in Acts chapter 2 demonstrates that. On the day of Pentecost, Peter preached the gospel of Jesus, and Jews from all around the world, about 3,000 of them, get converted, and they're baptized, and this is kind of a massive conversion. And what happens to next, you have this crowd start to move within community. And, and, And what's great about this, these aren't people who grew up in a Christian home. I know a lot of you grew up in a Christian home. These people didn't grow up in a Christian home. They just got converted. This is is totally new to them. And within this community, they're being shaped and formed into disciples. So what we're going to do is we're going to kind of just walk through this small passage today and and look of what life could look like within this missional community. It's it's very, very simple. So let's start with verse 42. It says, And they devoted themselves. Let me kind of just stop briefly. They devoted themselves. So they're devoted to Jesus. What we're going to see, they're also devoted to Jesus' church. Hmm. And they devoted themselves. And as they were devoting themselves, that's where their forming and shaping and growing happened. If, If you're dealing with some stuff in your life, some things you need to overcome, some things you need to break through, that shaping, that forming, that breakthrough is likely only going to come within community. God has ordained for you to grow within a community. That's where this deep change comes about. As we start walking through this passage, you may think, oh, all we need to do as Christians is just hang out together more. Not necessarily. It's what you do when you do hang out that matters. So let's kind of walk through here. Let's look at what they devoted themselves to. Look at the specifics. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. So the apostles are teaching. There are these new believers who just got converted, about 3,000 of them. And the apostles' teaching was the Bible, centered on Jesus Christ. The Messiah has come. 
Christ throughout the scriptures. They're teaching them the scriptures that are fulfilled in him. And you may wonder, well, where are, is the apostolic teaching today? Where are our apostles? Well, our apostolic teaching is the word of God. We teach the word of God. We devote ourselves to the word of God, and we let the word of God shape us and form us. And if you were here last week, Steve Bishop talked about um, this orthodoxy, the word, the truth of God's word. It's orthodoxy that we want to hold with humility. It's humble orthodoxy. It's our anchor. Now get this. As we teach you the Bible, we want to teach you orthodoxy. We want to teach you doctrine, but we also want to teach you practice. That is, we want to believe solid doctrine, and we want that to play out as we actually live our lives and engage our world. Let's take, for example, a famous passage that most of you know. It's from John chapter 14, where Jesus says to his disciples, I am the way and the truth and the life. And no one comes to the Father except through me. And if you're a Christian in here, you believe that Jesus Christ, through his life and his death and his resurrection, when we repent and believe in him, he is the only way to heaven. Jesus Christ is the only way to heaven. That is sound doctrine. But what happens is that you go out of here from this culture that is shaping you during this 40-minute message, right? It's shaping you that Jesus is the only way. But then you go out of here, and let's say you go back to your work, and you work with Muslims who are very nice, diligent, hard workers. And let's say you live next to Jews who are your neighbors, and they have the, the greatest intact family. And then you go out through your networks at school, and you have friends who are Buddhists, and they're morally respectable people. So you believe, doctrinally, Jesus Christ is the only way. But then you start to run in these other circles, in these other spheres of your life, with nice people of other religions, and you have these worlds of belief crashing into each other. And that's the challenge, isn't it? The challenge is, what do you do when you believe Jesus is the only way, and yet you live in a world that does not believe that. And they're nice people. And do you really believe that nice people without Christ will perish in hell forever? Do, do you feel that tension? You, you feel that tension. And what are your options? Well, your options are you could water it down. You could say Jesus Christ is not the only way. He died. All are saved. All the Jews, Muslims, and, and Buddhists, they're all in. Come on, they're all into heaven. You just water it down. Or you can say, I still believe it, but you don't talk to them about Jesus. You won't engage them. Neither one of those options are the option for a Christian. So when we teach you the scriptures, we want to teach it to you in such a way that you're rooted in your faith that Jesus Christ is the only way. No one else saves but Jesus, right? His death is, is only for those who believe. You want, you want to be rooted in your faith, but we want to teach you in such a way where you can engage those who do not believe like you do, and, and they may be nicer than you. We want to engage those who may be better citizens than you. 
but do not believe Jesus. We want to train you in doctrine and teach you how to engage. And we see that throughout the New Testament, if even in the Old Testament as well. So when we're training you, we're training you for missional engagement. Rooting in doctrine, stepping out in practice, leads to missional engagement. Well, look what else they devoted themselves to. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and fellowship. We all like fellowship. Fellowship has to do with the idea of participation. We participate together in doing the work of the Lord, like evangelism, giving, encouraging, helping those in needs, joys, sufferings, and hardships. Basically, when we talk about fellowship, I want you to think in your mind, doing life together. When you hear the word fellowship, just think family. You have your, you have your physical family. But this, this is your spiritual family. And when we fellowship, we pretty much do life together. And what's within fellowship, we learn how to navigate our different groups and subgroups, cultures, and world. I love hanging out with some of you, and I can ask you for wisdom, for discernment, how to navigate my world, how to navigate in and out of different groups and subgroups. And, and a lot of you need that. We all need that. We want to know, how can I function within these different cultures in the world and still remain a Christian? Have you ever thought about that at your work? Like, how can I engage in my work in such a way where I am still a Christian? For those of you who are uh, scientists, our, our church is amazing. There are a lot of young and older scientists within our church. And if you are a scientist, I don't know who you are, what realm you fall under, but if you're a scientist, have you ever thought to yourself, how can I be a scientist and still functioning out of my identity as a Christian? Because sometimes, my guess is, your worlds may collide. Maybe just being in the environment you're at, and you're trying to think, of, how can I function as a scientist and as a Christian? And how can the church help you? Well, one solution is, we could have an eight-week course where we will advertise in our bulletin. We say, we're going to have an eight-week course where we're going to train you to function as a scientist and a Christian in your workplace. And it's likely that you would come to sessions one and two, skip three, four, five, six, maybe show up for seven, skip eight, nine, show up for ten, just the way we roll at our church. We're not very consistent with things like that. And so that's probably not the best idea for our church. But how about this? What if you started living life in fellowship with the scientists in our church, those who are older than you, those who are your peers, and you started peer mentoring one another in fellowship. You started developing a theology of how can we be scientists and Christians and that be fine. That kind of work, that kind of discipleship happens in fellowship. When you live as a family, when you do life together. And it's not just a dream because I see it happen with a lot of you. You're interacting with one another in such a way where you're learning how to function in your different groups and subgroups, including your work. So they're devoting themselves to the apostolic teaching. They're devoting themselves to the fellowship. And look what else it says. It said they're devoting themselves to the breaking of bread. They're devoting themselves to eating. I don't know if it's referring to the Lord's Supper or if it's referring to just meals in general. Um, either way, I think Christ was central. You know, a lot of times early church, when they would meet together for a meal, they would celebrate the Lord's Supper at the meal. Jesus Christ is being central to all their meals. And 
it's, it's over these meals where a lot of sharing and encouragement happens and, and Jesus is, is lifted up. It is amazing to me how I can have a meal with another believer and be done with that meal and be so encouraged how they just built me up and how I was able to en- encourage them. And I'd like to encourage you to think about the meals you had this past week. Since last Sunday, think about the meals you had. Not all of them. And quit thinking about lunch. Think backwards, not forwards. So you think back to all the meals you had. How many of those meals were with other believers? We had about three or four the believers. It's amazing how you have to eat right, stay alive. And what about being a little bit more intentional of making those meals with other believers? A little more intentional where you would invite other people, hey, let's, let's go eat. And if no one is inviting you over, invite yourself over. Like recently, I kid you not, last night we ate at someone's house in the church, and it's because I invited us over to their house. I said, how about we come over and eat with you and you make us dinner? It was great. It's great. Try that one. Try that one. So let me just encourage you to take the initiative and, and have meals with one another. It really can be such an encouraging time. I mean, the early church is doing it. I mean, they're right there. The teaching, the fellowship, the breaking the bread. It's an alternative society. Look what else it says. It says, and they devoted themselves also to prayers. More than any other group or subgroup or culture or community that you see in this world. The church should be a dependent place. It should not be a room full of competent people. It should be a room full of people who are so dependent that we need to cry out to the Lord and say, God, unless you come through, I cannot function. Unless you come through, these things will not happen. We want to cultivate a culture where we are dependent people. We are praying for one another. We're encouraging one another. We want to cease from our self-striving and ask the Lord to make us a dependent alternative society. And you know what? When you pray and God answers your prayers, that reinforces your faith, doesn't it? It doesn't make you think, I'm not just talking to the wall, I'm not just praying prayers to the ceiling here. But when we gather as believers and pray for one another, it's awesome to see how God moves. I love praying with my ethos community. Two weeks ago, my wife uh, and I asked our ethos community to pray for us for a certain area. We needed a breakthrough. We needed God to come through. And within seven days, we met the next week. I told our group, God answered this prayer much better than we expected. That needs to happen with the community, this distinct alternative society who's praying together, praying for one another, and having God move in a powerful way. Look at verse 43. So they're devoting themselves to prayers, the teaching, the fellowship, the breaking of bread. Look at verse 43 says, And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. Oh, I mean, really, wouldn't that be an alternative society, right, right now? Like, man, miracles were happening in here every week, man. We would be in the papers, right? We preach the gospel, and then, and then signs and wonders and miracles, it would be a big deal. That would definitely be an alternative society. Well, thing to understand about this and about the early church is that, is that God was working in a powerful way to confirm the gospel message, and even though God does move in powerful ways today, 
it's, it's probably true that within the Bible, these miracles occurred within clusters. Uh, it's, Tim Keller talks about these miracles often being uh, associated with someone uh, who's a messenger. You think about all the miracles that happened when Moses, all the plagues, uh, or, the, or the prophet Elijah, the miracles associated with Jesus, the miracles associated with the apostles. It's, it's confirming the message. And these miracles in the Bible often occur in clusters. But that doesn't mean that we say, well, no miracles can occur today. We don't expect God to act. But we do say this. The gospel is power. And when we preach the gospel, people are converted. And we pray prayers. We still believe God heals. And we, we stick to his word and cry out to him. We believe that he still moves in powerful ways within our midst. We are a dependent alternative society, a dependent city set on the hill who believes that God still moves in powerful ways today to convert people, to change people, to heal people. Verse 44. And all who believed were together. They weren't sitting at home reclusive around the computer, playing video games, or studying all the time, says they're together. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. Isn't that great how I can say, I'm ready to live life with you. I'm ready to hang out with you. But let's leave my money out of it. You can talk about how you're all in this together all the time. But when you leave your money out of it, you're not all in. They were all in together. And that includes having all things in common. It's available to those who were in need. And if you look at verse 45, and they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. It's not a mandatory thing. It's an overflow of love. So they saw those in their midst with a need, and, and they met it. And a little bit later on in Acts, it tells us there was not a needy person among them. Wouldn't that be awesome for us to say? There is not a needy person among us. That is a city set on a hill. We are people who do not just care for ourselves. We do not just care for our families. But we want to say within this church, there is not a needy person among us. If you're here this morning and you're needy, tell your ethos leader, tell one of the elders. If you're part of here and you're struggling with something, we want to say among us there is not a needy person among us. We'll be discreet about it, but we want to live this out. We want to embody the gospel message. We want to say we just don't believe doctrine, but we want to live out this missional community of caring for one another. Can you imagine why in the world be attracted, why would the world be attracted to our gospel if we can't even care for one another? If we can't even love one another. If we can't even provide for one another. Why would the world want anything to do with that? That's just like the rest of the world. May we say there's not a needy person among us. Let's start to finish it up. You look at verse 46. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts. Kind of, don't you wonder, why are they still going to the temple? Well, it's because the early church is made up mostly of Jews. And they're still closely tied to the temple, and it made sense that they would worship God at the temple. They've been reconciled by their long-awaited Messiah. And look, it says... They did this day by day, a normal, consistent basis. Look what else they did day by day. It says they were having meals together. They were fellowshipping 
day by day, personal face-to-face fellowship. And it happened with glad and generous hearts. They're around each other every day, and they're actually happy about it. And what I'm impressed about this is this happened every day. Every day. Can you, can, how would you feel about being around other believers every day? Uh, I don't know. <laughs> yeah? yeah? Some of you, maybe not. <laughs> yeah, some, yeah, maybe. I mean, what do you think? How do you think that would work out? Like, get this. I don't think we can program this. I mean, would you want to come up to us and say, you know, Pastor, I think you need to program us being together every day. I don't think you can program that. I think we can structure Sunday services. I think we can structure ethos communities and a Bible study here and a Bible study there. But I don't think the things that we structure are intended to be your complete community time. If you ever say, I'm just not getting enough fellowship. I'm not getting enough fellowship on Sunday morning. If you ever say, I'm just not getting enough fellowship in my ethos community, I'll say to you, you're probably right. That's a small amount of times. And they were never meant to say, this is your complete fellowship time. Those are just little kickstarts to get the ball rolling. I think a lot of that fellowship is to happen organically. There's things we can structure. There's things we can plan. But the, the programs are really supposed to facilitate relationships. And those relationships are supposed to be ongoing throughout the week. I'm calling you, texting me. Let's meet for breakfast, meet for lunch, work around our jobs so that we can live life together. And, and I see it in a lot of you. You're calling each other hanging out throughout the week. I didn't, play, I didn't set a program for you to go have lunch with somebody. But the programs we have facilitate this hanging out together intentionally centered around Christ day by day. And that organic piece, as I'm starting to see happening more and more in our church, it's very, very encouraging. So what's kind of the results here? You look at verse 47 praising God and having favor with all the people. There's overflowing joy from the fellowship. It's reaching up in praise and honor and glory to God. And as this praise is reaching up to God, people outside of the church are taking notice. And it says the church has favor with all the people. Do you think our church has favor with all the people, like in Evanston? I bet you that most people in Evanston don't even know we exist. Wouldn't you agree? They don't even know we're here. Can you imagine having favor with Evanston? Having favor with all the people? They're having favor? And you wonder, how is it this little bitty community is having favor with those around them? Well, I think a lot of it has to do with the gospel they're preaching. They're actually living. They're talking about the love of God sending his son, sacrificially dying for them. They're actually living in the love of God, sacrificially for others. And while they're living this way, the community, the surrounding community, is starting to take notice, and they're having favor with all people. So when we live in a community like this, not only do we affirm believers, but we're also attractive to the world. We're a city set on a hill. I was telling my son, my uh, 12-year-old son, this story last night which it fascinates me. I've, I've heard it many times before, and I've never shared it with you. 
And I've been wanting to, and so I figured now's the time to do it. We're reading here about 3,000 believers, right? Did you know that around, I'm not a big historian here, but did you know that around 350 A.D., that would be about 300 years later, there were, 30, there were 33 million believers. And I, was, I was asking my son, I said, now how do we get from 3,000 to 33 million? And one way we can say, work of God. And the answer is absolutely powerful work of God. God just brought people and he grew Christians and bam, 33 million. But have you ever thought, let's try to explain it historically. Let's try to explain it sociologically. There was once this guy, unbeliever, when he wrote this book. His name is Rodney Stark. And he thought to himself, how did that happen? And he wrote this book called Rise of Christianity. And he explains things almost in like statistical forms to explain the rise of Christianity, how we get from 3,000 to 33 million in about 300 years. And this is what he says happened. During this time, there was two big, large epidemics that killed about a third of the Roman Empire. That's a big deal. And what was happening during this time, the, the rich people, the Roman elites and their priests and all their religious folks, they fled the cities. That's where everybody's dying. They want to get away from that. They fled the cities. And guess who stayed? The Christians stayed. And while the Christians stayed, they started taking care of their own who got sick. And then they started taking care of their neighbors who got sick. And, and many times what would happen is they were taking care of others or taking care of their neighbors. That sickness, this is really strange, would be transferred to them, and a lot of Christians died. Lots of Christians died. But statistically speaking, someone who was cared for by a Christian or by whoever would live longer, even though they didn't have any medicine, just by giving them food, water, just your general nursing care, it showed that they lived longer. And so for those pagans who didn't have anybody to care for them, no Christians to care for them, a lot of them died. And so as these epidemics are coming and going and coming and going, and then, and then people, a lot of people are dying, when it's all said and done, the elites have left the city, the pagan priests have left the city, and when it's all said and done, what happens? You have a lot of Christians left. And you have a lot of people who converted. And you have a lot of neighbors that were cared for by Christians. And then you have this run-up to 33 million. It's because the Christians were this city set on a hill. The Christians were an alternative society. The Christians believed the gospel and expressed the gospel even to the point of dying. That's amazing. And then the conversions happened. That's kind of what's happening here in Acts. Look what the last verse says. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who are being saved. As they're embodying the message, they're caring for one another, they're worshiping, they're fellowshipping, they're living life together, they're caring for others. Boom. The gospel message is being preached, they're embodying it, and conversion is happening. And it's all a work of God. It's all a work of grace. He's the one who makes this distinct city sit on the hill. He uses this community to shape disciples. 
He is the one who crafts his church into a distinct society that brings glory to his name. And I wonder, here we are, thousands, 2,000 years later, can we live in this? Can we live at such a missional community? I, I hope so. Let's just get really aspirational and just, and by God's grace and power, move in this direction. Two months ago, only two months ago, we started these ethos communities. Many of you are in these ethos communities, and guess what? The ethos communities are not perfect, but we'll get them perfect soon. No, there's a lot of things I'm sure they'll need to be changed and tweaked, and it's just this people thing, you know, involve people. It's never perfect on this world. But there's been a lot of encouraging things happening within these ethos communities. I've seen a lot of you tell me just the way you've been growing and, and just starting to live life together in small ways, move in small directions, take small baby steps, and care for one another. That's the mission of God. Caring for one another is God's mission. But it's also looking outside of yourselves. And these groups have been commissioned to hold these hospitality events. And some of you have been telling me about your hospitality events, how God has been using you to interact with your neighbors and to love your neighbors and to encourage your neighbors. But now as we move past Thanksgiving soon in a few weeks, we're going to be stepping out into more of these mercy ministries, these compassion projects, these caring for those in our society who are hurting and are wounded. And I've talked to some of the groups about what they're planning to do, and I am amazed. The elders and the leaders of the church could never have planned something so organically merciful and, and beautiful like that. But your groups are coming up with these ideas where you're saying, you know what? It's not just about us. We're moving out. We're stepping out. We're engaging. We're on missional engagement. And for those of you who are not in a group, we're only two months in. Now's a great time to jump in, to grow, to be living life with one another. And let it just be a little kickstart for the rest of your, your life with your believers, your brothers and sisters in Christ. And I just praise God for what he's doing here. He is forming us, shaping us, crafting us into his distinct people, a city sit on the hill for his glory. Let's pray. Lord, for those who have been so wounded in the past by community, by churches, and they've pretty much have given up on everything except for Sunday morning, I just ask that you would show them that you love them and you've called them to a people. You've called them to be loved, and you called them to love. And I just pray for anyone in here who has pulled back over the years that they would engage. They would step out and get into community and be loved and show love. And for those of us in here, Lord, who, who run in different circles, because we, we live our lives. Our lives are not always spent together. I just ask that we would be people who are not shaped by the world. We are not shaped by the godless culture. They would be shaped by your church. And you'd show us what it means to go all out as a church to live as you've called us to live by your grace, by your power, as a distinct city set on a hill. We're being shaped inwardly 
by your people, being shaped inwardly by your word, being shaped inwardly by the power of your Holy Spirit, and that we live our lives on mission for your glory. We thank you for what your word is doing in us. We thank you for what you are doing in us. Continue to mold us and shape us into the image of Christ. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.